Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we'll be talking to Matt Stoller about uh, FTX and crypto and how basically that whole world imploded yeah, <laughs> recently. Yeah, he's been going off about it. I mean, he's very frustrated with the direction of just being like, oh, it's just this one bad actor versus like right. being the uh, industry-wide fraud and obviously has a lot of deep uh, insight into the efforts to legislate, regulate regarding crypto. So it's it'll be good to talk to him about all of this. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Uh, but before we do that, so the Republicans have officially won the House. Um, we don't know yet the exact number of seats they'll have, like how how many. Yeah, 220, somewhere right? around there. Yeah. yeah, something like that. So it could be anywhere from one seat to like six, somewhere in that range. Uh, well, they already called a press conference and already announced what their top priority is. And you're not going to be surprised to learn. It is investigating one Joe Biden. Take a look. We're releasing a report today that details what we have uncovered. We're also sending letters to the Biden administration officials and Biden family associates renewing our request for voluntary production of documents relevant to this investigation. This is an investigation of Joe Biden, the president of the United States, and why he lied to the American people about his knowledge and participation in his family's international business schemes. National security interests require the committee conduct investigation, and we will pursue all avenues, avenues that have long been ignored. Committee Republicans have uncovered evidence of federal crimes committed by and to the benefit of members of the president's family. These include conspiracy or defrauding the United States, wire fraud, conspiracy to commit wire fraud, violation of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, violations of the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, tax evasion, money laundering, and conspiracy to commit money laundering. The Biden family's business dealings implicate a wide range of criminality from human trafficking to potential violations of the Constitution. In the 118th Congress, this committee will evaluate the status of Joe Biden's relationship with his family's foreign partners and whether he is a president who is compromised or swayed by foreign dollars and influence. I want to be clear. This is an investigation of Joe Biden, and that's where the committee will focus in this next Congress. So a couple things. First of all, they're stressing like this is of Joe Biden because they don't if if they were like this is about Hunter, everybody right. would be like, that's kind of frivolous. Like, what are you doing? Uh, and the other thing is human trafficking. Yeah, I read like, that if, as them like what? throwing a bone to the QAnon freaks. You know, look, I got a million issues with Joe Biden. Human trafficking. Are we really trying to make the argument that Joe Biden was human trafficking? Like what? What are you talking about? Right. What kind of nonsense is that? What kind of gateway pundit far right? Just to like throw that out there without shit? any other explanation. Like, what, what are you talking about? That's crazy. Yeah. Now, the um, look, here's the thing. I have no doubt that Joe Biden and his family, including Hunter, probably others as well, that uh, they've been involved in like sketchy business deals. Mm -hmm. And you're never going to convince me. And I know it, people on the Democratic side sometimes get goofy enough to do this where they try to convince you like, nah, bro, him sitting on the board of Burisma and getting money for the... He's just an expert just, in Ukrainian bro, energy policy. There's obviously. no problem with that. He's, just, <laughs> he's got a job, bro. It's like, why would Hunter Biden, who knows nothing about this, be sitting on the board of a Ukrainian energy firm and making however... He was making a lot of money doing that, right? Mm -hmm. You're never going to convince me that there's not like corruption involved there. Yes. So in a sense, I actually have no issue with sort of investigating legit avenues of corruption. But the problem comes about when you realize every single one of those assholes who was just part of that press conference, they were all Trump ball coddlers. And he was arguably 
the worst offender when it comes to this same stuff as president. Yeah. I mean, when he was president, a lot of people don't remember a lot of these specifics because it gets lost in the noise. But Trump took three hundred thousand dollars directly from the Saudi government. They gave it to him through his D.C. hotel. They had some event there for like veterans where, you know, it was just some some shit to just funnel money to Trump. And then, of course, Trump turned around, defended them when they killed Jamal Khashoggi an American journalist from the Washington Post. Right. He vetoed a piece of legislation which got through the Senate, which was to stop our support of the Saudi genocide in Yemen. He said, no, I'm going to kill that. I'm going to take the pro-genocide position. Why? Probably one of the reasons is because the Saudis are paying his ass. Right. Okay. So all these people, I mean, they, they're not principled actors is my point. So, you, so you don't expect a good faith investigation no, here I don't. on and behalf obviously, of the American people. And obviously mm -hmm. the, the human trafficking shit, just the fact that they threw that out there leads me to believe they're going to go with the most hyperbolic, over-the-top claims with the least amount of evidence. They're not going to go for the things that are actually good examples of corruption. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. Um, yeah, I, I completely co-sign everything you just said. I mean, with the Trump piece... Even if you put aside all of the corruption during his presidency, like just look at the present day. How much money is he getting from Live Golf and the Saudis? How much money is his son-in-law, Kushner, has $2 billion that he got from the Saudis? So it's not like they've cleaned up their act since they've been out of office. No, I mean, this is part and parcel of what they did. People like Jim Jordan and uh, Jamie Comer would carry water for him all day long on all of these just like actual blatant direct pay-to-play effectively schemes. I mean, with Biden, it's not excusable either, but there's like, you know, and there's a little bit more distance uh, than there is with the Trump stuff. But, you know, it's all ugly. It's all grotesque. I'll never forget when Sagar and I interviewed Congressman Ted Lieu, uh, Democrat, and we're pressing him on the Hunter stuff. And he was like, well, people sit on boards. And oh, it's like, oh. dude, and this is the thing is like in Washington, they really do think that way of like, well, this is just how it works. Just standard this is operating just procedure. Standard yeah. operating mm -hmm. procedure. This is just run of the mill corruption. And it is grotesque. I mean, here's what I'll say. I wonder about the optics of the literal day that you win control of the House. This is your very first thing. It's not, hey, here's what we're going to do about inflation and uh, gas prices or even their, you know, other culture war issues yep. that they ran on. Here's how we're going to deal with violent crime. No, it's like, here's the political hit job that we're going to try to pull up on the president. On the other hand, you know, it's not clear to me that it doesn't have some sort of political impact, right? I, I mean, the but the problem, all they want to do is try to muddy the water so that when people like us bring up Trump's corruption, that they can say, yeah, but look at this over here with Biden and, and Hunter Biden. So, you know, do they effectively like muddy the waters and force the press to cover these issues, which, by the way, the press should be covering these issues and presidents should be held to account. But they'll do it in the most like ridiculous and absurd and most baseless way possible. And it won't be done in good faith. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the main reasons why they lost this last election is because the American people viewed them as partisan hack extremists. And then the very first move verifies they're partisan hack extremists. Yeah. Like you said, it's nothing, nothing substantive at all, not remotely substantive. Here's my question for you. I'm, I'm curious as to how this is going to go. Do, would you predict that at some point this is going to devolve to bringing up like sex acts from Hunter or drug addiction from Hunter? Um, yes. <laughs> okay, the reason I asked that, here's why I asked that, because when I was a kid, I remember all of the talk around Bill Clinton yeah. and what went on with Monica Lewinsky. I mean, Ken Starr literally released like a I'm really horny report. Right. It was like, and then 
He busted a nut on her dress. Oh, this is so hot. I mean, uh, very bad. Mm -hmm. Let's impeach him. <laughs> and by the way, when they tried to impeach him over that, his approval rating skyrocketed to over 60%. Yeah. So I, I do think that's the other problem is that I feel like it, they go to the most lowest common denominator slash the most salacious bullshit. Well, here's so it's going to end up with thing. Hunter getting his ball sucked in 2013. Even if... Jamie Comer and Jim Jordan and whoever else is leading up these committees, even if they really do try to keep it like that piece out of it, you think cable news and all the like right wing commentariat, are they going to be able to resist the latest picture of Hunter with a prostitute or whatever? You know, no, of course not. Of course, they're going to go all in on him like, you know, doing drugs and whatever else is going on with it. And they, they can't resist it. So yeah, there's no way they're going to be able to walk the line of just staying with, like, Joe Biden and his direct connections to any sort of corrupt business dealings of Hunter and co. Yeah, this is the and I, I this is kind of unfair, but I'll say it anyway. It's sort of like the Republican equivalent of the January 6th committee. But at least with the January 6th committee, there actually was something at the core of it that was very disturbing, which is like an attempt to overthrow the, the country. Yeah. But this is like. Again, the thing I can't get over is like as somebody who genuinely cares about corruption, no matter where it shows up on the Republican side or the Democratic side, like I'm, this is actually like my top issue, the main issue that concerns yeah. me. But it's just so clear. They don't really have a principled objection to it. And it's just theater. Obviously. That, I mean, look at their list of donors. Like, come on. I know. It, I their know. hands are not clean had, either. And they did not care at all about Trump and Jared and all of the rest. I'll do you one better. There was, remember, the, the, it was in Responsible Statecraft. They had a great story that talked about how Norm Coleman, former senator from Minnesota, I believe, Republican senator, mm -hmm. he's now a lobbyist for Saudi Arabia, and he funneled $94 million from the Saudis into the House Republicans. Yeah. And then here are the House Republicans like, I don't know, Joe, you seem very corrupt. We're going to investigate you. Bitch, investigate your damn self. Like, you guys are yeah. swimming in Saudi money. What the fuck? It is a shame, too, because, I mean, we have in the past had effective government oversight. I mean, you think about, like, the church committee as the, you know, prime example. But there's just no way you would trust these people to do any sort of reasonable, factual job and that they would have any motivation other than going after their political opponents. So, so fi final thing on this, help, help or hurt in the long run for the Republicans? Does it gin up enough genuine stuff where it's like, I mean, oh, that's kind of sketchy or I is could, it? I, I could see it going either way. I really could because my instinct is that it will hurt them. Mm. My instinct is that it looks very bad at a time when people are going through all kinds of stuff and inflation really is an issue and people really are stressed about the economy for your first statement not to be, here's how we're going to deliver, but to be like, here's our partisan hit job, right? Mm. That's my instinct that people will see this as the theater that it ultimately is. But, you know, I'm not that confident in that because ultimately... It forces press coverage. It forces a narrative that they want. It muddies the waters enough that I think it could potentially take a toll. And again, you know, it's complicated for me, too, to talk about this because, like, Joe Biden should be held to account. He should be scrutinized. He sh the media should be looking into these things. I mean, Hunter taking a bunch of money, like, from China and from Ukraine and whatever. It's, yeah, the downplaying of all that shit. Yeah, is so I mean, it's, yeah. it's totally obnoxious. Like, that is completely legitimate. 
criticism. And when you leave it to the scummiest corners of the internet to do it, then you get things like them just casually throwing in their human trafficking and you don't get an honest accounting of the facts. So that's where my frustration is, is I I would actually like to see that accountability, but there's just not a chance in hell that it comes from these people. Yeah. My my instinct is to say it's going to really have no effect either way. I I don't think it's going to, whatever they sort of dig up and it'll just be yawn fest. I don't know. I mean, I'm saying in terms of elections, I don't think it's going to help. I don't think it's necessarily yeah. going to hurt. I just think it's sort of standard operating procedure. People will just tune it out. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. So tell me now about uh, what's going on with, with Carrie Lake. Okay, our friend Carrie Lake out in Arizona, she has lost for governor. But is she admitting that? No, she's not. And uh, this was a big question going in because obviously she got asked a bunch of times going into election day, like, are you going to concede defeat if you lose? And her, the only thing she would ever say is, I'm not going to lose, so it's not going to be an issue, basically. Like, uh, I won't have to concede defeat because I'm going to win. Well, that didn't happen. She lost. And now, lo and behold, she is not conceding defeat. And she's alleging all sorts of, you know, voting irregularities and improprieties. She put out about a two and a half minute video on Twitter. I'll read you an excerpt from it. She says, hey, Arizona, Carrie Lake here. Wanted to reach out to let you know that I am still in this fight with you. For two years, I've been sounding the alarm about our broken election system here in Arizona. This past week has confirmed everything we've been saying while we call for Katie Hobbs to recuse herself. Over a year ago, they ridiculed us. It turns out we were right. The fox was guarding the hen house. And because of that, voters have been disenfranchised when we raise concerns. And I filed a lawsuit months ago to get rid of the electronic voting machines. They said we were crazy. Then she talks about, you know, the lines in Maricopa County. She gives some anecdotal, like, examples of one guy had to drive here and there. And ultimately, he wasn't even sure and his it's vote counted. contested, by the way. I'll get back to that. Okay. And then uh, sort of at the conclusion or the part, I guess, that's most significant is she says, rest assured, I have assembled the best and brightest legal team and we are exploring every avenue to correct the many wrongs that have been done this past week. I'm doing everything in my power to right these wrongs. My resolve to fight for you is higher than ever. And oh, by the way, Carrie Lake was spotted at Mar-a-Lago. Okay, so first of all, the claim that they were making on election night is there's over two-hour lines in Maricopa County. Mm -hmm. The Maricopa County Twitter account immediately responded and said, the waits are less than 30 minutes. This is just factually not true. The other point is the right is harping away on this idea that um, Katie Hobbs has some say in how the elections Mm -hmm. run in Arizona, which is true. But what they're not telling you (laughs) is that there are also two Republican officials, including the Republican governor, who have to sign off on what Katie Hobbs lays out. So the idea that she's running the elections and she's the only one in charge is just that's just I mean, not accurate. I've got another one for you, too, which is that, I mean, there were there were definitely issues in Maricopa County in terms of like weights. There were weights. And I don't think the voters should have to endure long weights in order to cast their ballot. That is my position, regardless of whether it's predominantly Republicans or predominantly Democrats who are voting at that time. But Republicans did this to themselves when they told all of their own voters, don't vote early, show up on Election Day. And then, you know, when there's a line because you've told your voters like all the mail in ballots, that's fraud and it doesn't work and you got to show up just on Election Day. Then when there's an issue at a polling place, which is going to happen because there are, you know, how many municipalities across the country and some things are going to go awry somewhere, then you're shit out of luck because you have banked in all of your voters showing up on that one day. So I have no sympathy for them. Ultimately, Um, they've really done this to themselves. And, you know, obviously, like the fact that there were voting machines that were having issues, they had an alternative process. You put your ballot in this other box. They're still counted. It's not like this kept people 
people from being able to vote, even though, again, I grant you, like, voters should not have to do endure long lines in an ideal system. This would work much more smoothly. But do okay. I have any sympathy for them? No, I do not. All right. So there, 53% of the Republican candidates who were running for office on Election Day were denying or questioning the results of the 2020 elections. Still. Yeah. I am sincerely very thankful and happy that literally, I think only one person in the entire country is questioning it now, Carrie Lake. You can include Donald Trump, but he wasn't on the ballot in yeah. 2020, right? Yep. So, but there were a number going into it who were sort of hinting, like, I am going to question it. Yeah. Mastriano, he was at January 6th. This guy is a legit extremist. He conceded. Blake Masters, he ended up conceding. conceding. Yeah, he so, sort of toyed with it for a minute, and then he ultimately came around and conceded too. So Carrie Lake being the only one in the whole country, I'm actually breathing a sigh of relief because mm -hmm. I genuinely thought, I actually agreed with Bill Maher on this, his whole like, the Republicans win and more than half of them are doing the election denialism. We don't, like, they could just try to do everything they can in their power and some of them get positions that directly control elections to try to change the result of elections. And by the way, uh, on that point, you had all the all the candidates who were running for positions that do have direct control over elections. Yeah. The, the election deniers lost. In the swing state. Or maybe, yes, or maybe, yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's on the low end of the there number are, of them that could get elected. That there are a lot elected. of wackos that got elected at the uh, in red states. Right. A lot of election deniers yeah. that will be running elections but at in least, red states. <laughs> at, but least at least it's <laughs> likely to go Republican anyway. So it's yeah. like, okay, you're not really stealing it. I you're mean, I don't want to downplay that, though, because even in red states, there are competitive congressional districts right. and yeah. competitive that, no, races, and and state house, state legislators. So it does matter. But yes, I agree with you. Big sigh of relief that literally every one of the swing state, secretary of state and gubernatorial election deniers, they all lost. OK, but here's my question. What the hell is Carrie Lake's endgame? I don't know what her endgame is. Yeah. Because you're not going to be able to raise a stink enough to like, what, have something happen and Katie Hobbs doesn't become a gut. Like the process is going to continue no matter what you say or do. I, so what is your endgame? Are you just trying my, to virtue signal to Trump so yes. he picks you for VP? Okay, my that is my theory. I don't know about picks you for VP, although, I mean, she was clearly his favorite candidate this cycle. He loves Carrie Lake. He would talk about her all the time. Very, you know, it's exactly the type of person he'd be impressed with. Number one, she was all in on his election bullshit nonsense and completely unrepentant about it, wouldn't back down. He loves that. He loves that she's got that, like, TV presence and that on-screen, like, charisma and, you know, ability. And so she certainly has that going for her with him as well. So I think she was sort of, like, his favorite this time around, and he was definitely counting on her winning. I mean, most of I expected her to win in Arizona I, oh, I as did well. Too. The polls, oh, I did, too. All the mainstream polls, right-wing polls, they all had her up leading into election day. It's a big miss for the pollsters in Arizona. Um, but, you know, now that she's lost, I think it's hard to see her being a good pick for VP. But if she wants a slot in Trump world, I think he probably wants her to do this because it makes him look a little less bad <laughs> if she really won in Arizona and they stole it from her versus every single one of my candidates, save for the, the guy in uh, Nevada that he backed. He did win for the governor's race. All of his other gubernatorial picks, they all lost. So this would at least give him something to hang his hat on if she really won but was robbed. So I think he's pushing her to do this. And I mean, not that I think she needed a lot of pressure to go along with it. Yeah, I just... I, we're not going to get into our, to our standard Trump-DeSantis debate, but, like, as we're talking about this, I just think, like, he's such a loser. Like, the, everything he's doing is just, like, tailor-made to become less popular. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like, Carrie Lake, yeah, she's charismatic. She was on TV. But 
she's psychopathic and she just lost. And like, you think like, yeah, I want this one in my inner circle. It's like, uh, uh, look, I got conspiracies. You want me to get into my conspiracy? Go ahead. Oh, have you seen some of the pictures coming out of Mar-a-Lago with no. these Trump groupy older women that are always around him? No. <laughs> well, let me tell you something. They're doing a little <laughs> Mar-a-Lago. You know what I'm saying? No, I don't. Tell you, me. Oh, you know what I'm saying? I don't. You know me. what I'm lay saying? It, lay it out for He's, me, babe. Look, he is... Uh, Let's just say him and Melania probably don't spend much time together at all. Okay. And Trump is dragging in all these MAGA groupies. That, and I wouldn't be surprised if Carrie Lake is on that list because Carrie Lake said in a speech that um, my husband is my second favorite man on the planet. <laughs> it's like, tell us you suck that mushroom dick without telling us you oh suck that God. mushroom dick. Like, t- t- wow. go ahead, tell me. Wow. Wow. It's so gross to think about. That's so crazy that she said that. I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, I didn't know she said If you that. saw the so picture crazy. of these MAGA groupies, Crystal, you would be amazed. <laughs> these women look like they exist to drain Trump's balls. <laughs> like, they, that's what they look like. That's their whole thing. They got all the fucking Botox and the collagen and the, the big lips and the... Okay, so these are like wealthy, sort of middle-aged, Botoxed up, lots of plastic surgery. Is that what we're talking? Yes. In terms of the look? Yes. Okay. There was a picture of them with, oh, what's that guy's name? Stephen Miller? Yeah. Yeah, so Stephen Miller was at the announcement. He took a picture with these three Trump groupies. I look this up. And I was just like, oh my God. I always see, there was a blonde in that picture who I always see with Trump. Just like, remember his spiritual advisor? Remember that yeah. one? His spiritual advisor same, who's like a vibe. relatively attractor older lady. Yeah. And I, I remember looking at that like, Spiritual advisor? I don't, know, I don't know what you're doing. There here, was bro. a lot of speculation about that yeah, when I came back to the picture. Yeah, because remember, that. I mean, shit, we forget all the. Remember Karen McDougal? That whole thing he had a, an affair with that Karen McDougal lady. So you don't even remember this affair. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like there was the Stormy Daniels one. Everybody knows about that. But the Karen McDougal one, yeah, people, I, that was actually a bigger story because he apparently gave campaign funds. Did he remember that? Did he Stephen move on Cohen. her like a bitch? She grabbed me by the pussy. I don't even wait. I grabbed me by the pussy. They let you do whatever you want. I didn't even wait. Just grab him. All right. Anyway, I don't know about that aspect of the Carrie Lake story. We'll let you all judge for yourselves on that piece. But um, no, don't judge for yourself. I'm right. You're welcome. <laughs> but anyway, she's not backing down. She thinks that this was stolen from her. And so she's going to keep going, I guess, like fruitlessly flailing around. The only one in the country. Yeah, Only but one. I, I do think it's primarily for the benefit of Trump and her. She's decided she's all in with him. And, you know, so her ticket to whatever she's going to do next now that she lost the governor's race is going to be through him. So wasn't she a former Obama supporter, too? Didn't she support Obama? And then she like pe- the argument people make about her is that she's all all over the she's just yeah, like, a, she's just like, let me find my lane. And, you know, so was she an Obama supporter. You picked a weird lane, though. Carrie, I don't like, know if you. I don't know. You don't see it? Mm-mm. Well, we'll get back to you on that <laughs> one. Um, in the meantime, uh, we have a wonderful guest to talk to you today about crypto, in particular, the FTX breakdown. Maybe we'll, we could also ask him about Ticketmaster and Taylor Swift. It's been a big uh, week for mm. Matt Stoller and the whole antitrust and anti-financial fraud. <laughs> Swifties now have based politics. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's like very eye opening that even the like the largest star in the world can't possibly avoid this Ticketmaster monopoly in the way it screws over fans, venues, artists, and everyone in between. So maybe we'll ask him about that as well. But the primary reason we wanted to have him on is to get his take on uh, Sam Bakeman Freed and all of the things crypto. So let's get right to it. Matthew Stoller, great to see you. Good to see you guys. Um, so are you welcoming a lot of Swifties into the uh, antitrust movement this week? <laughs> Yeah, apparently the, the new <laughs> new generation gets to discover the joys of Ticketmaster. Yes, yeah. indeed, indeed. Um, I may ask you about that in a bit, but let's start with the the whole crypto situation. It's been a big week for you, uh, and a big week for your uh, your Twitter presence as well, which I've been following very closely. Just for people who are uh, a little uninitiated, can you break down in the simplest possible terms? What led to the collapse of FTX? What even is FTX? Who is Sam Bankman-Fried? What exactly has been going on here? Yeah, so this is going to, I'll start with what is crypto. So just very basic stuff. Yeah. So uh, crypto is is basically just, uh, the, the technology is like a, a different way to have a spreadsheet. It's a less efficient way to have a spreadsheet. And all cryptocurrency is, is people putting a marking in a, a spreadsheet and saying that that's valuable. That's it. That's what the blockchain is, basically, that, right? So when people that, talk about the blockchain technology, and this is one of the things that I'm told a lot, it's like, oh, there's some problems with crypto, but the blockchain technology is really important. That's basically what the blockchain technology is. Uh, right. A blockchain technology is just a spread. It's just like a shittier spreadsheet. Right? Okay. All right. It work as well. And all a cryptocurrency is, is one of those spreadsheets, you call it Solana, you call it Ethereum, you call it uh, Bitcoin, whatever it is. And that that's it. It's just like you mark in that spreadsheet and then people pretend it's money. That's all it is. It's all just, it's all nothing. And one of the big problems we have is is, is that um, there's been this kind of like sense that, oh, there must be something here because so many powerful, important people have said crypto is a real thing, uh, but it's not. It's all just nothing. And its use case is essentially money laundering, fraud, gambling, um, and so what, what happened is they, they've been doing this uh, for, I guess, since 2009, but really kind of started picking up in 2012. And since, I don't know, it was 2019, 2020, a series of centralized exchanges, FTX being a large one, emerged where you could like trade these things in a slightly more efficient manner. Um, and FTX turns out to be a giant fraud. Uh, but they're all frauds. The whole space is just fraud. I mean, that that's, I, I'm... It, so let me let me crazy. give the uh, let me give the the pushback on that view that I've heard, especially with regards to the idea that it's it's just it's just numbers on a spreadsheet. It's really invented. It's really nothing. Which is that hey, look, fiat currency is really just you know invented and imaginary in a certain sense as well. Um, what is your response to that? Well, I mean, the dollar is backed by the United States. If the United States is yeah, sure, the United States is an abstract concept, but it's also a real a real thing. Yeah. So. With you the know, military and money and taxes uh, we, and human beings and all that stuff. Yeah, so it's like it's not the same thing. A fiat currency. We have a we have an, an FDIC. We have a Federal Reserve. We have taxing authority. We have a military. We have a society, and we have a currency that that we manage as part of that society. He, here's the all, other the other. Um, argument that I've heard in favor of this is, you know, there's uh, 
this problem with centralized finance and sort of like elites having control over the money supply. And uh, the other thing that's good about crypto is, first of all, you can have like frictionless uh, payment transfers and you could also use it for, you know, like dissidents. Uh, for example, people are donating money to uh, Ukrainian war effort or in Afghanistan where the financial system has basically collapsed. Perhaps Bitcoin or crypto could be useful in that sort of a situation. What do you make of that argument for it? Well, okay, so the U.S. has a ter- like a shitty payment system, right? Like really bad. Our banking system is bad. Uh, like if you go to Brazil or you go to Europe, or you go to lots of other, India, you can like transmit money instantly and basically free. Uh, and because the government has set up a, a payment system and in the U.S., we don't have that. And so, you know, people are like, oh, well, this is frictionless and, and free and, and it's not. But you know, it's only in comparison to the fact that our existing system is not particularly good. Um, but that's just because our government is corrupt. There's no uh, other reason than that. Um, in terms of, you know, being able to, uh, you know, have people abroad or authoritarian regimes move money, that's, you know, that's just money laundering. Right? It's another way of calling, saying money laundering. The fact that they're living in authoritarian regimes and they're using, you know, they're trying to get around those, those states doesn't make it not money laundering. It just means that we don't like authoritarian states and we shouldn't like authoritarian states. But there's nothing kind of inherently different about that than people like using, say, dollars or other, you know, some other currency, except this is just this is just kind of fake stuff. Um, so, I mean, it's they're, they're just trying to get around the state because they don't really believe in the state. And the this the sense, oh, well, there are these authoritarian regimes so people can get around those. That's more of an excuse. Um, but I guess the other thing there when you're, you're talking about, oh, well, look at all these people using, say, in Afghanistan or Africa or places where they're uh, or certain parts of Africa where they they can't, um, you know, get access to a, a reliable payment system. Well, what about now? What about people who have, you know, put money into uh, first of all, I don't really believe that they use Bitcoin or whatever. But but what about, you know, the fact that they've maybe put money into these cryptocurrencies and then they've totally collapsed. It just kind of hurts those people if they are actually using it. So all of this is just kind of like a sheen for an embarrassing fraud that elites kind of endorsed. So what exactly is FTX and what led to its collapse? So FTX is is an exchange where um, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, who's this, you know, dopey guy (laughs) who, um, you know, was ingratiated himself in lots of places in DC and lots of kind of media outlets. And, um, but he owned, he started this, this, uh, trading company called Alameda research. And then he started an exchange called FTX. And it was a place where you could go, you could put your money into it and you could buy cryptocurrencies and you could speculate on them. And then he also had this, uh, trading operation that would also trade on FTX and FTX was also, printed its own coin. Um, and they, you know, Alameda and FTX were in a sort of Enron-like fashion. They were trading with each other, even though they were the same entity because Sam Bankman-Fried owned, owned both of them. So they were engaged in sham transactions to mark, to fraudulently mark up the asset value of what they owned. And what was really happening is Sam Bankman-Fried, when people would put money into FTX, it would go to Alameda and he would steal it. And that's just what happened. So he stole 
eight to ten billion dollars, something like that. We're still trying to figure it out. So yeah, so my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is what I read and how I sort of conceptualized it, but you had a situation where there was FTX and then there was Alameda. Alameda is the more like investment banky wing. It's supposed to be a separate company, but like you right. said, Sam Bankman Fried owns it. And so he'd take the money, uh, the crypto in FTX and then shift it to Alameda and do all these like super risky investments. And in a in a weird kind of roundabout way, that's almost like exactly why we put Glass-Steagall into place, separating commercial banking from investment banking. Because the idea was, look, when you go put your money in the bank, you don't want the bank doing all these risky casino capitalist bets with it. You want it to be like safe. And so in a sense, this was like the crypto version of like why you need regulation and why you need like a Glass-Steagall to not allow this guy to, to shift the funds from one business, which is supposed to be stable, to the other, which he was, like you said, either making wild bets with Alameda or just flat out stealing it, which now, again, correct me if I'm wrong, from my reading of the situation, it looks like he was just beyond a con artist, like the most obvious, you know, type of fraud you could, like Bernie Madoff style fraud, right? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, the, what's it's so embarrassing because he was basically saying he was doing this the whole time. I mean, he went on odd lots, I don't know, six months ago or a year ago and said, cryptos are essentially just a Ponzi scheme. And it was like, he just said it. Uh, wow, so, I didn't know that. Yeah, no, it's really embarrassing. Um, the whole, um, and they were like, the, the, the two um, uh, interviewers were like, they were shocked. They, they, one of them, I think Matt Levine said, it sounds like you just said that you're in the Ponzi business and the Ponzi business is pretty good. <laughs> wow. And, I mean, it was, it was incredible. <laughs> But yeah, no, he just, he had uh, an unregulated uh, casino offshore based on, you know, gambling with fake money that really can only be used to buy drugs on the internet or money launder. And now all these people, I guess, are shocked, totally shocked that it turns out he's not on the level. I mean, right. Well, and, th and this is part of why this particular uh, crypto collapse is so devastating is because... Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, or SBF as people call him, he really invested a lot of time and effort into gaining that like elite sheen of approval. You know, he sort of like positioned himself as the good crypto bro. He funded a bunch of candidates and democratic causes. Um, he, you know, had uh, funded media organizations. Uh, he presented himself like, oh, I'm the one, I actually want crypto to be regulated under, unlike these other bad guys who just want it to be the wild, wild west. And you had gigantic celebrity endorsers, Matt Damon and co, who were doing ads for this dude. So yeah, what is it? I mean, dig into that piece of like the elite acceptance of uh, Sam Bankman fried and also endorsement of crypto overall, which is ultimately at its core just a fraud. Yeah. So first of all, I, like what you were saying earlier about how doesn't this show the need for regulation? I would say normally I would agree with that. I just want to make a point on this. I actually don't think we need regulation. I think we just need to destroy this whole space. Like this shouldn't exist. There's no reason for crypto to exist. There's no reason to try to. I mean, I'm for regulation if it will destroy the space. Uh, I don't think we, you know, a lot of people are see, using this moment to say we need regulation of crypto. It's like, yeah. no, we don't need crypto. Well, I, I saw I saw David Dayan had a good piece in the prospect actually about this that was like, just we have all of the laws that we need. This is a fraud and it should be treated as such. Yeah, the the it's it 
you know, the, your, your question about like elite acceptance, right, where you had an endless number of Brookings institution like conferences, you had Larry Summers is an advisor to one of these crypto investment firms. Wow. Oh my God. Uh, yeah, no, it's like, it's just kind of awkward and embarrassing. Yeah. I mean, so Bill, I, Bill Clinton went to Sam Bankman Fried's thing, right? Conference yeah. down mm -hmm. in the Bahamas. Yep. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, just a giant fart in church, right? It's just like <laughs> just one long fart in church. Is what it is. Did you say a fart in church? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like that. I'm going to use embarrassing that all the time. All <laughs> well, it's been, it has been irritating me a little bit though, Matt, how, um, Crypto defenders and uh, Republicans are trying to make it like it's just this one guy, Sam Bankman-Fried, and right. they're trying to make it almost like a partisan thing because his donations went to Democrats. I mean, he was the second largest funder of Democrats this cycle outside of George Soros. Of course, they leave out his top deputies was funding, funneling tons of money to Republicans. Like, clearly, there was plenty of bipartisan uh, acceptance of funding. He was funding primaries, right? So he wasn't like fighting for Democrats. He was trying to defeat basically the Elizabeth Warren faction in the Democratic Party. Right. So it wasn't like, you know, which is smart, I guess, if you're a Ponzi scheme crypto goon. <laughs> right. Yeah. True. Talk about how Warren cracked down on it and how that's why, you know, a lot of this chatter trying to frame it like this is just, you know, there's the one bad actor and he's a Democrat. That's just so misleading. It hasn't Warren effectively tried to crack down on this for a while. Yeah, so so there's a lot to say, but you know Sam Bankman-Fried is is a stooge, right? He's not that important. Uh, what what the people really behind this crypto, like this dangerous movement, and that's what it is. It's an authoritarian movement. It's, they're coming out of Silicon Valley. It's a guy named Mark Andreessen at Andreessen Horowitz who has been pushing this deregulatory agenda and a legal attack on our financial rules, and then really pushing a series of Ponzi schemes. Do you guys remember Clubhouse, that yes. audio app? So you were, that was Andreessen Horowitz. You remember like when you were on it, the most of the rooms were people like pushing crypto? I mean, I didn't, never I didn't interact it. with yeah. it enough to have that experience, but I believe yeah. you. Okay, so, so that was like a lot of what it was about. These guys out in Silicon Valley, Sequoia, Andreessen Horowitz, the, Andreessen is on the board of Facebook, like, or was, these guys are, um, you know, we're trying to like create a, a kind of a set of Ponzi schemes that they could benefit from. And Sam Bankman-Fried was just kind of a useful stooge, mm. right? There's a whole set of institutions here. And what they're trying to do, because they got caught, right? Because the whole space is melting down. And it was largely a Republican. I mean, I'm not partisan here, but it was largely a Republican um goal here. Like the Republicans were the ones who wanted to promote crypto. It was Pat Toomey. It was Ted Cruz. It was, you know, T Ted Cruz actually blocked the appointment of a Democratic uh, bank regulator, Solly Omarova, explicitly because he said she wanted to regulate crypto out of existence. Mm. Uh, and he was right. And it's too bad she didn't get there because she would have regulated it out of existence. And that would have been a good thing. This was largely crypto exploded under Jay Clayton, uh, who is Trump's SEC chair. Uh, who now actually is an advisor to the law firm that is managing FTX's bankruptcy. Um, so this really exploded under Trump. Uh, and there are a bunch of bought off Democratic politicians, you know, Richie Torres being one, but there's a series of them. Uh, but mostly it's a Republican scheme and the kind of Elizabeth Warren faction on the Democratic side have been saying we need this is this is ridiculous. Sherrod Brown, who is the chair of the banking committee on the Senate side, has been saying this is ridiculous. Uh, Gary Gensler, who's the SEC chair, 
has been since he took office in April of 2021, which was already crypto was at, you know, massively powerful uh, levels. And Sam Bankman-Fried was already worth $20 billion or whatever it was. He started to act um, in when he got into office. And what what's what these guys are trying to do now is they're trying to say, oh, look, how come Elizabeth Warren didn't stop us from doing all of these bad things? It's her fault. It's Gary Gensler's fault. It's the New York Times's fault. It's the Democrats' fault. And it's all nonsense. They're all just trying to cover up for the fact that a dangerous group of people in Silicon Valley pushed a mass fraud on the American public because they do not believe in democracy. And that is what is going on here. And I am so angry about it. Um, but I'm also enjoying the, the total collapse, even though it's sad that, some, that people are losing money. But this, this thing needs to collapse and we need to salt the earth and really embarrass anybody who was promoting any of this, except if people you know, were doing it because they were disillusioned and now they realized, oh, well, maybe that was the wrong thing to do. There were a lot of people who you know, were well-meaning, um, but I think there's a lot of bad faith here and it's, it's really scary and dangerous politics. So talk to me about like the cascading effect, because I already saw a couple of articles that, you know, other companies that were sort of tied in um, with FTX are already having massive issues. Is this going to lead to a sort of snowball effect and almost like the implosion of the crypto markets in general? Or is that something that is going to take, you know, government action to intervene in order to sort of expose the fraud more for what it is? No, no, this they're all. So <laughs> this is not the first Ponzi scheme to blow up. Like the the, the first major blow up was, uh, I guess, maybe six months ago. It was the Terra Luna mm-hmm. uh, Ponzi scheme, which was run by a, a South Korean guy named Do Kwon. It was a $45 billion. It was called Algorithmic Stablecoin, which is, you know, I can go into that if you want, but it's basically just fraud. And uh, that collapsed. And then a whole series, because all these guys like invest in each other and deal with each other, you know, that ultimately led to the bankruptcy of Three Arrows Capital, which was a hedge fund and led eventually to like FTX falling apart because FTX, you know, had a bunch of, uh, either had lent a bunch of money to uh, Terra Luna or had borrowed a bunch of money from Terra Luna and Three Arrows Capital. And, you know, there's, BlockFi and Gemini and Crypto.com and and they're all they're all in the same position. Binance is the largest exchange in the world. It's pretending that it's solvent. It will probably fall apart. Tether is another one. It'll probably fall apart. Like this is an interconnected set of financial institutions that are trading something that has no value and is completely unregulated. And they are all interconnected. So it's all gonna fall apart. It's all falling apart. It's been falling apart for six months and it can't fall apart fast enough. Yeah, I think I saw today that Binance is halting customer withdrawals. Oh it's a real sign of, uh, of oh financial health. And I mean, Whoa. they were like, not to get into all the backstory, but they were the ones who sort of like, you know, were happy to push FTX. They were rivals of FTX, happy to push them over the ledge or sort of like positioned as like, the, the public perception previously is like they were sort of like the villains and Sam Bankman fried was the good guy and then he falls or whatever. Anyway, so the yeah. fact that now the other largest exchange is also having to halt customer withdrawals, uh, I think underscores wow. that the the whole house of cards is trembling at best and crashing down uh, more likely. 
Matt, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about the core of this, which you said you see this as an authoritarian movement, basically, to destroy democracy. Um, right. Can you talk to me about that ideology and, uh, you know, what leads you to make such a large claim? Yeah. So I I had a lot of people uh, who love crypto, you know, kind of write me because uh, I write about anti-monopoly politics and they would say, I love what you do. I'm trying to attack concentrations of power, but just in a different way. Like, I don't believe that, you know, what I push for is largely the state to break up monopolies and for, you know, for state action, democratic state action to address monopolies. And what the, the, and I, the anti-monopoly movement basically came out of the financial crisis when too big to fail banks crashed everything. So did Bitcoin and eventually crypto. And it was the same rationale. They were saying, we're disillusioned with our existing systems and we want, we want some sort of solution to address the cons consolidations of power at Goldman, at Google, at wherever. It's just that what they, their conclude, my conclusion is we need to reinvigorate the democratic state and have a more powerful government that can take on these kind of private corporate power centers, these private governments and break them up to promote liberty, to promote a society. The other, the, the crypto people were saying, actually the state is irredeemably flawed and cannot do anything except engage in authoritarian uh, policy choices. Therefore, we must build our own kind of systems outside of the state. And one of the core um, elements of statecraft, the building block of the state is currency. So we will attack that. And that was the idea of Bitcoin. That was the idea of sort of these, these uh, cryptocurrencies is like fundamentally we are trying to get rid of the ability of the state to regulate the financial system, whether it's for national security purposes or whether it's for uh, anti-money laundering purposes or whether it's just for social purposes. Uh, we do not believe in the legitimacy of the broad mass of the people to make rules for all of us. We want to uh, prevent that and effectively have a small group of people making those rules for themselves. It's a kind of opt out of the state model. And I, I think there's a lot of people who believe that um, they took advantage of the disillusionment of the bailouts, which I think was completely legitimate. It's why a lot of people who love crypto are also hate monopolies. Um, but fundamentally, it's an ideological movement that's, you know, saying billionaires have corrupted our society. And what we need to fix that is a different, more corrupt set of billionaires. <laughs> <laughs> would you describe that as like radical libertarianism, anarcho-capitalism? How would you sort of peg the ideology? I think it's I think it's fascism uh, at its core. I, I think it's a libert you know a libertarian fascist movement. I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's not. It, you know, people always bring up. It, it's not. It's not like Nazi Germany or anything. But it it really is this belief uh, that you know, old, that a small number of people get to get to sort of rig everything for themselves and that the state itself uh, is illegitimate and that our votes are illegitimate because what you vote for is fundamentally state power. State power shouldn't have any effect on our lives or on political economy. So it's it's an authoritarian uh, impulse. And so you see this as being basically spearheaded by a handful of um, billionaires. You mentioned Andreessen in particular, but the sales pitch to the masses is that this is actually like a populist movement to fight back against the current corrupt billionaire class. And I mean, this was really 
there was like at the beginning of Bitcoin and crypto, there was this very sort of like utopian idealist pitch. Then there was also this pitch of like, okay, well, they've shut you out of the existing financial game. This is your chance to be the player in the new financial game. Is that kind of how you see it, that there's like billionaire ringleaders who are then selling it to the masses in this very misleading way? Yeah, I mean, that they, they used any pitch they could. You know, financial inclusion was a big one. Um, and, uh, you know, the idea was that they had a bunch of like, you know, there, there was a year ago, the market cap of all crypto was $3 trillion. It was never really $3 trillion. Today, it's $800 billion. It, it's not mm-hmm. really $800 billion. People say they're billionaires, but that's not like actual real money. They might have a billion dollars of Bitcoin, but they can't turn it into dollars. Unless you have a bunch of retail investors coming in, giving, putting dollars into the system, and then they can swap their fake money for real money. So their goal was to get people to buy crypto with real money so that they could exchange their crypto for for dollars or euros or whatever else it was. And so they used any sales pitch they could, financial inclusion, uh, populist empowerment. Um, but ultimately, it was a, a lot of it was just kind of you can you can gamble or you can money launder. And those are the real use cases. So uh, to your point, Matt, this just came out now. FTX bankruptcy documents show that Alameda Research loaned $4.1 billion to related parties, including more than $1 billion to Sam Bankman-Fried and two executives. So takes the money that was in, or crypto that was in FTX, shifts it to Alameda. Alameda gives him over a billion dollars. So to your point, I mean, that, I don't. There's no other way to read that. That's just flat out. Yeah, it also fraud. came out. Their new CEO is like caretaker. Came in to you know figure out what the fuck happened here and try to you know do whatever he can do. Uh, said that they were spending customer money on like mansions, yachts, and, and shit. Yeah, yeah, for their executive team in in the Bahamas. So I mean, just out outright direct right. fraud and abuse. Um, I'm also I'm curious. For you to also, have you dug a lot into this like effective altruism thing that a bunch of these guys claim to subscribe to? I mean, this was another thing that came out. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried very bizarrely engaged in this whole text exchange with a Vox reporter where he copped to the fact that the whole like posturing as, oh, I actually want to regulate crypto. Like that was a a fraud also that was just PR. Um, And he also... You know, he professes to believe deeply in this effective altruism philosophy. Apparently that he also basically cops to being PR to fraud as well. But can can you speak to that philosophy and why that has sort of taken hold among a certain set of Silicon Valley billionaires as well? Yeah. So so effective altruism is this kind of extreme, you know, Benthamite utilitarianism saying that we need to have a small group of people who can think long-term about risks to any living thing that could ever, you know, that will ever live. Um, and it's just, it's like pseudo intellectual horseshit is, is just that like panders to people who are not very, you know, who are like kind of smart, but kind of lazy and want to feel good about themselves, but don't actually know what doing a good deed is. So they like, they go to like effective altruism forums and muse on, you know, what the most effective thing is to help people in a hundred years or whatever it is um, and argue with each other on Sam Bankman-Fried's payroll. And that's all it is. It's like a sociopathic ideology (laughs) um, for people who are paid off by Sam Bankman-Fried, including a lot of people in DC. Um, You know, I mean, there's a lot of people, I mean, you live here, you guys know the kinds of people who were, you know, who fell for this idiocy. 
it's like a very common, it's, it's, it, it, do you think you're smarter than everybody else and that you can see things about the world that no one else can see? If you've ever felt that way, <laughs> have I got an ideology for you? Right. <laughs> yeah, Crystal. There's, there's a lot uh, of folks here like that. Yeah, Crystal was talking to me a little bit last night about this uh, effective altruism idea. And for people who don't know, one of the key tenets of it is that um, AI will eventually destroy us. And so anything that you could do to prevent AI gaining power well, and, the, the and controlling I, us? At the, as best I can understand, the idea is we have to focus on the potential humanity, not just even of the next 50 or 100 years, but of the next like billion years. And so if there's some risk out there that is a sizable percentage that this risk could destroy all of that potential humanity, then your time is best spent diffusing that risk. And the thing they've kind of settled on is this uh, intelligent AI. And so the reason why, you know, you described it as like sociopathic, uh, the reason why I think that's apt is because it gives them a pass on any number of like atrocities and horrors that are being committed today. Anything from like they would say dealing with the climate crisis is a waste of time and money because ultimately it's unlikely to destroy all of humanity. So it's really important to keep your eyes on the prize of like the intelligent AI thing um, or like, you know, famine in Yemen or war or anything else. They can just like hand wave away as really not important in the grand billion year scheme of humanity. That's my understanding of it, at least. Yeah, I think that's right. And and it's it's also important to recognize that we have an institution that's supposed to look out for long-term risks, and that's called the government. If you want to know, so one of their things was pandemic prevention. And like the government actually does a lot for pandemic prevention. And, um, and you know, we, we the government does a, a huge amount to, to address risks of all, all sorts. And it, it's not a coincidence that these, uh, the, the, the effective altruist types are trying to build a whole way of thinking about risk that excludes the, the government, that excludes the government, that purposes the government for a small group who can, you know, who are somehow much smarter or, or have much more like, who can sort of foresee the future. Um, but yeah, you're 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 basically right. And one of the other things that it does, aside from giving people an out to think about things like climate change, is it gives them an out to think about things like they themselves are stealing large large amounts of money. Like, what kind of better excuse do you have to steal large amounts of money than, well, I am saving humanity or something, therefore X billion dollars is best in my hands versus the people who actually, you know, deposited it in my crypto exchange or or whatever it is. I mean, it's it is an ideology that's based on people being able to do this. The people who are in it's a cult. The people in the cult get to do whatever they want. That is a really that is a tremendous point about how that could justify any kind of mentality of like, well, it's the greatest good for me to steal these $8 billion in customer funds because I'm the one who really understands, you know, the real risk for humanity a billion years in the future or whatever. Um, according to CNBC, FTX used corporate funds to purchase employee homes. So that just came out as well. Yeah. Um, Matt, talk to me a little bit more about the regulatory piece of this. First of all, 
Give us a little bit of the backstory, because there was this fight going on theoretically between like Sam Bankman-Fried and others about how crypto should be regulated or whether crypto should be regulated. There were different legislators who had different ideas and different approaches. Um, My understanding was Sam Bankman-Fried was pushing for it to be regulated, but under this um, particular agency that's sort of like toothless and wouldn't really do anything. Um, I know we've you already mentioned like we don't really need new regulation. We just need to call it fraud and and deal with it as the scam and the fraud that it ultimately is. But give us some of the backstory and some of the uh, regulatory regimes that have been floated, what Elizabeth Warren has been pushing for and what you think Congress might do next. Yeah, so uh, we have securities laws, right? We passed them in the 1930s because people lied and committed fraud. It's very similar. You, you, can, you can do that in finance if there are no rules. So uh, what these securities uh, laws do is they say, if you, if, you have, if you are issuing a security, which is to say something that is a financial instrument, which is a, reflects the efforts of a group of people and is done uh, for, for profit and it, it can fluctuate in value, then it's a security. I mean, it's basically meant to be like a stock. Right, that's what it's supposed to en- encapsulate. And uh, and then if you are security or if you're a securities exchange, a place where these things are traded, then you are regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission and you have certain disclosure requirements and um, you have certain obligations that, um, you know, where exchanges have to do certain things, certain transparency pieces, certain they're not allowed to vertically integrate in some in certain ways. They have to keep customer money segmented out, not allowed to trade with that. There's just a bunch of rules and uh, we just didn't enforce any of them when it came to crypto. So people said in kind of, I guess, 2015, 2016, oh, these things are just something like, we've never seen anything like this before because it may look like a security, but they use a completely different spreadsheet to track it. (laughs) And they had a bunch of like fancy lawyers write a lot of papers saying that this was the case. Mm. And, you know, and I don't like to be partisan, but it was really under the under the Trump administration where they didn't do very much. They just did some pump and dump. They they went after some pump and dump schemes. They didn't go after the exchanges and they didn't try to establish the legal precedent that cryptocurrencies are securities. So. You had this space kind of, and the tail end of the Obama administration, they didn't do anything either. So, so not let them off the hook. But um, but by the time, you know, the Biden administration came in, you have this whole kind of legal gray area where these securities-like things are being traded and used in all sorts of ways. And they're, while they are securities, they're not useful. It's not like, like a stock, the IBM stock actually represents a stream of profits from IBM, which is a company that does things, you know, Ripple or or Ethereum or any of these, you know, cryptocurrencies, they don't actually represent anything. Um, so while they are securities, there's no actual economic point behind them. But by the time the Biden administration came in, uh, they had to deal with this tangle of law and precedent and they're doing that. They're going through the courts. And there are some bad regulators in the Biden administration. The Commodities Future Trading Commission, which is, uh, which is, they want to pretend like these things are are commodities. A commodity is something like wheat or gold 
um, you know, it, or orange, you know, frozen orange juice, like that kind of thing, right? Stuff that you don't need disclosure requirements because you know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't have the same market manipulation rules. You don't have the same transparency requirements because it's a commodity. Well, they're trying to argue, okay, well, these securities like things, they're actually commodities. Therefore, all of these rules, consumer protection rules don't have to apply to it. And that was the big, that was Sam Bankman frieds attempt. He was trying to write a law that would move jurisdiction of these securities-like things from the Securities and Exchange Commission to the CFTC before the SEC could actually start to really regulate. Mm. And so that's where we are now. Like the SEC actually had been investigating FTX for months before it collapsed. They had also been investigating a series of other Ponzi schemes, and then they collapsed before the investigations were going. <laughs> but um, but we have the, the laws on the books to have the SEC just say, okay, all of these things are securities. They have all these disclosure requirements, and then they will effectively go away because there no, there's no economic point to them. And the same thing with the exchanges. So that's kind of where where we need to go here is just have the SEC take care of all of these things. Gotcha. Um, yeah. What do you foresee actually happening though? Because what we want to happen versus what might actually happen usually differ. I don't know. I mean. We have to remember that the collapse is not over. So I think, you know, it's likely Binance will fall apart and then Tether will fall apart. And so we're going to have a situation where in six months, it could be that, you know, people have still have Bitcoin the same way that like, you know, some people still have like Beanie Babies in the attic, right? <laughs> um, it's not that they went away. It's just that it's not very important. It, it could be that in, in six months, there is, you know, there's a little bit of this stuff lying around in the shadowy corners of the world and people use it to do things and we can't really get at it. Uh, it could be that Congress, you know, tries to pass laws to regulate crypto, which would be bad because it legitimates crypto. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it, a lot of it depends on the political arguments that people make. And right now, what I think is, is, you know, I think it's like hilarious that all these things are collapsing and it's really embarrassing for these people and I'm enjoying it. And I think it's a good thing. And I think we're winning the argument that there are problems here. But I also worry that the uh, crypto Silicon Valley types are successfully portraying the problem as Gary Gensler failing to regulate or Elizabeth mm. failing to regulate and saying this is a failure of the state. Even though the whole premise behind this was we are attacking the state and we're going to weaken <laughs> the state right. and we're trying to go after you know the, the state in every way we can. Oh, the state didn't stop us from doing all of these dangerous things. Let's defang the state. That's some incredible like circular logic there. I mean, my fear for a while, especially as I was watching Sam Bankman-Fried play in all of these Democratic primaries and, you know, be the second largest Democratic donor this cycle and gaining a lot of prominence and influence in D.C., my fear was that crypto got folded enough into the regular financial system that, you know, then you start to have pension funds having crypto and, you know, it's part of like it's so enmeshed in the financial system that these entities become basically too big to fail and are subject to the same types yeah. of like potential bailouts that the regular financial system was. I mean, it seemed to me like that was kind of the end game they were uh, shooting for was let's keep the Ponzi scheme going long enough that we become indispensable and we get to get the bailouts like the big guys do. That's 100% right. I mean, I did, you know, I did a video for Breaking Points um, uh, on uh, uh, a couple of months ago where I was like, yeah, that's the game. I mean, the first part is to is to get the institutional money in so they can exchange fake money for real money. 
right? If, you, if you're putting your 401k, put some of it into crypto, uh, or institutional investors put some cash into crypto, then that allows these guys to, to cash out of their crypto and get actual dollars. And then, uh, and then ultimately, yeah, they can attach their institutions to the FDIC or to the Federal Reserve. And they have allies at the Treasury and at the Federal Reserve that actually want that um, because they these morons think that this is somehow innovation and this is somehow a good thing. Um, really, they just it's like the Fed is just lazy and they don't want to do real time payments that are free, which is what most other central banks actually do for their public. Mm. Uh, and so that's the like that's the political problem that we have. But yeah, I think I think it's unlikely that institutional investors were moving. I don't see a way that crypto gets what they want at this point. And I'm not even sure that it'll really these institutions will exist in six months. Wow, that's that's bold. Um, so let me make a little bit of a, a wonky point here, because this is something I've thought about quite a bit, is that this the right-leaning Austrian economics types, they like to hawk precious metals like gold, and effectively their argument for it is, look, this is like natural money. It's in limited supply, so you know if, if inflation is happening, then you know it's a hedge against inflation. If you invest in gold, the price goes up effectively. And some of the arguments... Since a lot of the crypto stuff, the genesis of it was in like libertarian thinking, mm -hmm. they kind of made a similar argument of like, yeah, this is more. Yeah, they said it would stable. be a hedge against It'll inflation. It'll be a hedge against inflation. Mm -hmm. But then when inflation hit, it went down. And to me, that was a very big moment of like, whoa, this is like nothing what they portrayed it as. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I, I know that's a wonky point, And I know that that's something that landed with me that perhaps I don't know if it landed with other people in the same way. But I do well, feel like that kind of exposed that the nature of crypto was not how they were. Yeah, portraying. well, all of their promises about crypto like immediately collapsed. I mean, the very basic original promise was you'd be able to use this like it's money. And that never even came close to materializing. And in fact, the amount of like transactions that it was actually being used for was going down. It just became a purely vehicle for like, Speculation. Fraud and speculation. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, this idea that it would be some hedge against inflation. And then the, it's the first thing when the market starts to right. tank, it's the first thing that falls off an absolute cliff. So the idea it was a hedge against anything was just ultimately completely preposterous. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if you ever want to, like, I started asking a couple of years ago about crypto. I was, I always thought this looks kind of like a scam, but I just kept asking people, what's the use case here? What, what can you really use this stuff for that you can't use something else for that's better? And I think hedge against inflation was one of was one of those. But there were there were many other, none of which turned out to be true. Yeah. And I think it was all just in a I don't want to say it was all an excuse to just sell. I mean, that was some of the cynical people behind it. That's certainly true. But I think a lot of people were looking for a reason, you know, for the energy, for something they could do that could make their society better. Um, and crypto looked like it was something they could do. And a lot of people got swept up in that, well-meaning people. But I think that a lot of the, at this point, what I'm seeing is just like anybody who is still kind of like, anyone who doesn't see what's going on really needs to rethink their priors or is just on the take. Um how many? Uh, there's a lot of how many of people. Sorry, but yeah. How many ordinary people do you think will be hurt by this, Matt? Though, because that That'd is be what I think about. Is there are a lot of people who really like believed in this sort of like idealist pitch. Yeah, my cousin, populist pitch of crypto, and who are just going to end up, you know, getting completely scammed by this. Yeah, I mean, and and I'm a 
you know, I'm a DC elite, right? So when I'm talking about this stuff, I'm talking about it in a different context. Like I'm just talking about it, the people that I know who were on the take, right? So just to give like some basic framing, like when I wrote a piece a year ago saying that this was all a scam, this old political contact reached out to me and said, hey, Sam Bankman-Fried wants to meet with you. Uh, and uh, he was like, they were like, he was on Capitol Hill. Do you want to go to Capitol Hill? And I was I don't know if it was integrity or laziness, but I was like, no, I'll meet him at my office. But now I'm not going to go like take a 20 minute Uber ride or whatever. And so we never met. But that's the kind of like world. That's like the, those are the people that I'm dealing with. I'm not like I'm not dealing with people who were, you know, who were pulled into this. I mean, I get emails from people who lost money at it. And it's just, it's a really sad thing. I don't know how many of them. There are, I mean, I, you know, the stats that are put out by the industry, you know, they put out a lot of reports on financial inclusion showing that black and Latino, um, uh, blacks and Latinos disproportionately bought into crypto because it was a means of financial inclusion. I don't know if any of those studies were true. They were, they're certainly not coming out with follow on studies showing how much those people lost if it was true. Um, it, it's certainly the case that a lot of people did lose money and some people they lose a thousand dollars and it doesn't matter. And some people lose a thousand dollars and they have to get divorced and their life falls apart. And it's truly awful. Um, I don't know. I, I think we'll have to, you know, we'll have to have some studies to really figure out the extent, but I will say, I think that, um, you know, there are a lot of people that made money off this who didn't necessarily know what they were getting into. So I'm thinking about people like Matt Damon, and you know Tom Brady, um, Kim and Kardashian, Kim Kardashian, Spike Lee, like a whole bunch of people yeah. who were famous. You know, Larry Summers should have known better. But I do think that there is there is a space for these people to come forward and say, Larry David, we made a bunch of money off this. Uh, we'd like to donate it to uh, some sort of relief fund right. for the people who lost money on the scam. I think that would be a really good thing to happen. I know there's a class yeah. action lawsuit against them, but you know, I think it's it's they should just kind of come forward and say, we didn't realize it. Um, and, uh, and, and it's, this was money that was pilfered from ordinary people that then came to us and we want to, we want to give it back. It's our way of saying this was wrong. Um, I think that would be a good thing to have to happen. Uh, I think a lot of people suffered from this and it wasn't necessary. Yeah. I mean, my mom actually donated a little bit into crypto. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a crazy amount, but she obviously, believe the hype at some point that this is real and, you know. And had a financial advisor who was telling them yeah, that too, right? Yeah, you know, sometimes she has on CNBC, which is, she shouldn't in the house when I walk yeah. in. And I'm like, oh, you believe this I mean, stuff? I was, I was and thinking, my cousin, you know, my cousin, yeah. he, he was huge. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised if he lost a lot. In there. I was thinking a lot about the business press in this too and how, you know, they went all in on this as, as well because, I mean, it clicked well. You know, one of the things that came out recently about Twitter was that for a while, really the only segment of Twitter that was growing was basically like porn and crypto. <laughs> oh my god. In terms of like Twitter conversations which, you know, I guess maybe that's part of why Elon Musk is interested in it. I that's one other thing why I wanted to ask you about is how Musk fits into this picture because he's been one of the biggest like crypto bro promoters in the entire world. Yeah, um I don't know how directly he fits in. I I'm not saying he doesn't, I just don't know. I I would say that he is clearly uh friends with a lot of people who are involved in crypto and he shares their ideological priors. He's a libertarian. He has deep contempt for the Securities and Exchange Commission and regulators. Recently, he said, I think yesterday, he said, 
that he didn't believe that Twitter's consent decree with the Federal Trade Commission was um, was was viable because it was made under duress and legal agreements made under duress are not viable, um, which is a very crypto-y thing to say, uh, to just be like laws are suggestions to me. Right. Um, and uh, but I, you know, I know that that I believe that um, I was at Tesla bought a bunch of Bitcoin at a certain point and, you know, kept it on their balance sheet. I think he had been promoting uh, Do- Dogecoin or whatever. He's he's a market manipulator. Um, it 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 he he manipulated or he the SEC alleged he manipulated stock um, Tesla stock. And then they they he has been manipulating cryptocurrency values. But that's not illegal because they're not regulated, or at least they weren't regulated. So he's, you know, he's like kind of like the ultimate meme guy, libertarian, um, sort of loves this stuff, kind of hates the state. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised to see him kind of in in bed with a lot of these people, but I'm just not sure. Yeah. Um, do you think that Sam Bankman-Fried ends up in prison from this? I do. I, I, don't, I don't think that you can embarrass this many powerful people and not end up in prison. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. Um, Matt, if you don't mind, I'd also love to get your take on uh, Taylor Swift and Ticketmaster and all of that, because I think that is an important story as well. I mean, just so people know the backstory, like Taylor Swift just announced she's doing this uh, live tour. It's her first time touring in like four years. Obviously, she's an extraordinarily popular artist. So fans were trying to get tickets and the Ticketmaster website crashed and it's been a whole, whole thing. And so now you have a lot of Swift fans who are starting to dig into uh, how Ticketmaster is just like a brazenly, uh, they're terrible, brazenly manipulative price gouging monopoly. Oh, basically, so um, can you give us a little bit of the the backstory and context on that, though? Yeah, I mean, I love Taylor Swift. <laughs> Crystal, Crystal's a big I'm fan also too. A fan, but I yeah. have to say, the new album is total trash. It's terrible. Know. Yeah, I, I mean, literally, like the last four albums have been trash. But anyway, yes, I'm I a Swift fan as well. I think she's regressing. Yes. Okay. So for real, I feel like she's trying to be very like artsy and show that she's like evolved in a deep person or whatever. It's like, just like do some pop that feels good. Just do the thing that you're known for Taylor Swift. So yeah, I'm not a fan of the new album, but anyway, I would love to see her. I would love to go and see her live. Swifties don't attack Crystal because I swear she loves Taylor Swift. She plays the music all the time. I know way more Taylor Swift songs than I would have otherwise known because yeah. of a lot of the stuff that's on your playlist. And so she does great. love her, just so everybody knows. But I'm knows. a fan of like old Taylor Swift. Like yeah. I actually listened to probably her first album more than anything else. But anyway, um, yes, Ticketmaster, Matt Stoller, tell us yeah, what we so need to know. Ticketmaster is a company that, you know, it, it's li- it's actually called Live Nation. And uh, it was a, they own the, the main software that sells tickets for almost everything in the U.S. and around the world, not everything around the world, but they own a large chunk of it. And so this would be things like, you know, NBA games, NFL games, um, music concerts, things like that. They all use Ticketmaster. It has a big marketing arm. And then um, Live Nation, which is the parent company, they own um, a lot of most performing arts spaces and they manage a lot of, of groups, not every group, but they they, uh, they manage a lot of artists as well. So effectively, if you are in the entertainment industry, the live entertainment industry, you have to deal with Live Nation, right? Either through their uh, Ticketmaster software and marketing 
apparatus or their um, or you have to you know play at one of their venues or you have to book one of their artists and they have lots of different ways to coerce you into doing what they want and that's what they do to maintain a monopoly so they had monopoly issues in the 1990s when it was just Ticketmaster. Then in, I guess it was like 2012, the Obama administration inexplicably allowed Live Nation to buy Ticketmaster. It was like, when I say inexplicably, I don't mean inexplicably, like the Obama administration was just super corrupt. They allowed these terrible things to happen. So it's not inexplicable. Um, but they allowed Live Nation to buy Ticketmaster and then uh, Live Nation Ticketmaster ended up controlling the whole industry. One of the things about monopolies is that they don't tend to improve the quality of their products. So there's this expression that the best reward for a monopolist is a quiet life. Like you don't have to do a good job because where else are your customers gonna go? And so when Taylor Swift, who, um, when Taylor Swift hasn't, you know, she hasn't toured in four years, she's, she's gonna tour and Ticketmaster sends out, you know, alerts to millions of Taylor Swift fans and their website, which is already terrible, their website crashes and their app crashes and people can't get through. And it's this kind of nightmare for all Taylor Swift fans because they really wanna buy these tickets and they can't. And it's really just because Ticketmaster has not maintained the quality of their software and hasn't, hasn't um, made the investments that they would need to to handle peak demand. And I guess I'll just finish by saying that the chair of Live Nation was, um, I think his name was Greg Maffei, but he was on CNBC this morning. And they, the, the anchor, one of the anchors, who's like these guys on CNBC are almost always, you know, loving Monopolis. But this guy was like, I have a 17 year old daughter and she's really pissed. And <laughs> asked him, you know, what, what, what's the deal here? Shouldn't you have like, invested more in your, and he, he said, this is what Greg Maffei said. He said, well, <laughs> Taylor Swift hasn't been on tour for four years, for four years. And then, you know, she comes on tour and this was demand that we couldn't have anticipated. So that's really the issue. So he effectively blamed Taylor Swift for Ticketmaster not maintaining their software enough to be able to deal with the incoming demand. Um, and this is just like, it's just constant. We have an economy full of monopolies and Ticketmaster Live Nation is just kind of like the most obvious one. But we, we my organization, which is called the American Economic Liberties Project, we have a campaign, it's a coalition, uh, called Breakup Ticketmaster, and and about 21, 22,000 people have sent emails to the antitrust division asking them to look into the old merger between Live Nation and Ticketmaster and considering undoing it, so Breakup Ticketmaster. Um, and we think that there will be, uh, I know that the Attorney General of Tennessee is starting to look into it, mm. and I suspect that there will be some uh, some action here because it's just, it's like so obvious. Of course, Eddie Vedder in the 1990s was complaining about Ticketmaster and tried to do a boycott. So this is just kind of like a whole new generation learning about it. Mm -hmm. I Discovering mean, the problem. Crystal and Sagar have firsthand experience with this because to sell tickets for your live oh, show, you have no choice. You have I mean, to go through Ticketmaster. You don't have a choice. You have, no you have other to go through Ticketmaster and they take some exorbitant amount that like is ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they shake screw down the over venues, the venues, they, yeah, the artists, shake. the fans, everybody involved. How, how, how do they force you to use their software? Because you they have deals with the venues, right? So, so anywhere you would go, they're forced to use Ticketmaster, right? So exactly. So you sign on with the venue, and part of your contract with the venue is it's going to be through Ticketmaster. So it's very hard to get around using them. I mean, you really have to be a giant star to be able to 
you know, construct your own ecosystem essentially from scratch in order to avoid going through them and dealing with them in some capacity. Um, so do you think, how do you think the uh, Biden administration has done? You criticized the, the Obama administration. I know you're a critic of uh, the Trump administration on this as well, but you've been very hopeful about some of the personnel in particular that has been put in place under the Biden administration. And you and your organization are to credit for helping to, you know, make sure there is a bit of a different stance under this administration. So what do you see as some of the big wins so far? What are some of the question marks? What are some of the areas they could do better on? Yeah, so so what what we're seeing the the biggest the biggest win was uh, they blocked the merger of uh, Penguin and Simon and Schuster, which is the the two of the of the five big uh, book publishers, which have been consolidating for decades. And so you have a a problem of like you have uh, fewer and fewer uh, less and less diversity in books, and books are the vessel for ideas in a democratic society. So blocking that merger was a, a big deal and it, it had a lot of other, other consequences. But they've also done things like say, like they've brought back criminal monopolization law. They have dealt with um, this technical way that private equity controls large swaths of industry, which are, they put their own people on the boards of directors of competing companies. That's actually technically illegal, and the antitrust division brought that law back, and so you're seeing directors resign all over the place. Mm, wow. Uh, they have uh, they have antitrust suits of against Google and Facebook, uh, and that actually two of those were brought under Trump, and then they've also brought an additional suit uh, against Facebook's merger with with uh, within. They are investigating uh, Amazon. I'm guessing they'll bring a suit relatively soon on that. They are investigating Apple. Uh, I think they they went after some pesticide monopolists because there's a there's a whole aspect in rural America. They're they're going through the the economy and trying to take on the sectors that are really concentrated and establish good law after 40 years of bad precedent. They're trying to reverse that, and it's slow, but it is this kind of remarkable revolution of political economy policy that we haven't seen in our lifetimes, and. You know, it's still somewhat tenuous, but a couple more years, and I think we will really be in much better shape as a society because of what they're doing. Do you see, Matt, because sometimes you have Republicans talking a little bit more about uh, antitrust. I know you you work in a very nonpartisan or bipartisan fashion. Um, you've been very interested in trying to forge a new bipartisan consensus around antitrust. Um, how do you feel about, you know, the Republicans getting on board with some of these efforts? It's it's um, it's very weird. You have, you know, a couple of months ago, there was an antitrust bill that passed with 200 Democrats and 39 Republicans. So it didn't have enough. You had to get to 218 to get to a majority. So you didn't have enough with either the Democrats or the Republicans. And the Republicans broke with their leadership. There was a full whip against that vote. And 39 of them said, we are going to vote um, for a stronger antitrust. The Heritage Foundation, which is sort of the center of Reagan republicanism, mm -hmm. they endorsed stronger antitrust legislation, which is really shocking. Um, so there is a vibrant debate on the right. Like J.D. Vance is a, you know, believes in stronger antitrust. And uh, there are a, a bunch of others that do as well. That said, I think what we're going to see is that the Republican establishment is really hostile to stronger antitrust. And so that while there is a debate and the Republican voters really hate monopolies. I mean, when we do focus groups and polling, the Republican voters are way more hostile to monopolies than Democratic voters. Democratic voters don't like them, but Republican voters 
get it and they hate them. But their establishment is trying to divert the um, problem of corporate power to just sort of the woke corporations and bullying corporations to be less woke as opposed to recognizing that concentrated corporate power is upstream from the social problems that they really dislike. And so do you have any expectation that perhaps on tech where there seems to be the most sort of bipartisan conversation that now that you have a Democratic House and you've got a Republican, I mean, sorry, the opposite, Democratic Senate and Republican House, um, do you think there's any possibility of legislation being passed in the next two years? I I do. I think that they're going to do something. Uh, I'm not sure what, uh, but I think that there will there will likely be some sort of legislation. Jim Jordan, who's the Republican chair of the Judiciary Committee, his members who have been supporting him, you know, they're like, look, we got to do something. And he doesn't want to, but he's going to have to give them something. It'll probably be something minor and procedural, but it'll be there. And then I think, um, you know, we're going to we're going to have the state attorneys general. They're going to continue. And the um, the antitrust division and the Federal Trade Commission. But I also think, you know, we can't overlook this. The judiciary really matters. And so the the Democrats keeping the Senate means that they're going to put a lot more judges on. And typically what you see with judges is that the Trump judges, even though Trump was not bad on antitrust, the Federalist Society Trump judges are absolutely terrible on antitrust, um, at least the ones that I've seen, to the point where they're just like, one guy named Carl Nichols ruled for United Health Group buying another by another company in the in the healthcare space. He said they wouldn't ever do anything anti-competitive. The CEO's a good guy. Yeah. Was just oh my a, God. It was really embarrassing. And they, a lot of them are like this. Um, the the Clinton judges are like are kind of unpredictable. They're often terrible, but sometimes they're not. And then the Bush judges are usually bad. The Biden judges tend to be better because they're younger. And they're more aware of recent scholarship around antitrust and economic concentration. And so the fact that Biden is going to be able to put a bunch of people at a district court level on the district courts, they're not all going to be good, right? But they're going to be younger and some of them are going to be good. And those are the people who are going to be hearing the cases and maybe will be more skeptical of corporate power. Like the judge in the um, the judge in the Penguin-Simon & Schuster merger, she was a uh, she was an Obama appointee. And then Biden just promoted her to the D.C. Circuit Court. So that's the kind of judicial profile that the Biden administration is going to um, is seems to be looking for. Not entirely clear, but uh, so that's a, that's a really big like I was. That was the reason I wanted the Democrats to hold the Senate is so that they could continue to put judges who are skeptical of corporate power in, into the judiciary. Yeah, well, I think it's really important to keep in mind, you know, some of these things that don't get the headlines, but are, you know, quietly shifting American society and American economy in a, a much better direction that you've been a huge part of. I and mean, when I talk about some of the things that I think are you know, the best pieces of the Biden administration, antitrust is always one that I bring up along with the personnel on the uh, National Labor Relations Board, which has been critical in terms of uh, the new sort of grassroots labor movement. So, Matt, thank you for, so much for spending some time with us to break all of this all of this down, which is incredibly important to what is going on in the country right now. Great to see you. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. All right, everybody. That was Matt Stoller. Um, interesting thoughts there. I will say I am worried that even if you have some antitrust enforcement, all those Federalist Society judges. Yeah. That could just be like, nope. Well, who's on the Supreme Court? Ultimately, you know, I mean, that makes a big difference. They, they 
it's a very hard right ideological libertarian group ultimately. And with the Federalist Society, like abortion got a lot of the focus in terms of what their ideology is. But the reason the abortion, uh, the anti-abortion advocates were so effective is because they teamed up with the like libertarian economic people who have all the money. And so they fund the Federalist Society. So you can bet all those judges have been vetted for their like pro-corporate economic views as well. Although I will say he made an interesting point, and I've always found this to be true as well. Um, Ideological libertarians are actually split on the question of monopolies, because on the one hand, if you break up big businesses into smaller businesses, effectively, increases competition, increases quality as a result Mm -hmm. of it, lowers prices. So there's some libertarians who actually support breaking up monopolies. Others think... Just mostly not the billionaires that fund the movement. Of course. (laughs) Which leads to the next point I was going to make, which is other libertarians think that they kind of support monopolies because it's like, hey, became a monopoly for a reason. They did stuff right. This is just the market. This is just the market. This is how it works. They got to the top. This is what they do. But like he said, and Ticketmaster is the best example of this, it's like... Once you buy up all the competition and you're the only game in town, you have zero incentive to do a decent job. Yeah, that's you know? right. And they also, so one of the problems with Ticketmaster too is that you have all these bots that come on and, and buy up the tickets as quickly as as they can after, uh, you know, Taylor Swift or whatever show and was resell announced. resell it. And then, yeah, they're, they're scalpers and they resell them on the secondary market. Well, Ticketmaster also owns the secondary market. So they get a cut on, you know, the initial purchase, and then they get an even larger cut on the secondary purchase. So they have every incentive to allow these bots to operate and buy up all the tickets before ordinary fans have a chance. It's a massive scam. It just sounds like a massive scam. Total scam. And we are about to be scammed because for your birthday, we're going to the ballet and we probably got to get it from... Ticketmaster, Ticketmaster, yeah, for sure. (laughs) God damn it. Damn you, Ticketmaster. God damn you. I think... um, Stoller, what I always appreciate appreciate about him is he's very serious about governing. Like he really thinks about, you know, what's the legislative pro- who's on our side, who's not on our side, like whose interests are aligned where, what are the judges, which judges are good and where are they going to come from? He just thinks about the nitty gritty of governing in a very serious way. Which is, that is by the way, super, Im- super important. <laughs> yeah, super important to get into those details and because that's that's where all the real decisions are being made. Yeah. You know? Right. Um, but I will say I would love to see a debate between Matt Stoller and uh Bhaskar Samkara of Jacobin. And I talked to you about this before, but there's actually different schools of thoughts on the left when dealing with like monopolies, right? Yeah. Because an argument that a lot of leftists make is that like, you know, the government is effectively the ultimate monopoly and you want the government running your healthcare. You want the government running education. You want it to be like the one-stop shop where everything happens. And uh, and you have, uh, what, are the, what, is, what do they say? Economies of scale with, mm-hmm. with a monopoly, which is like, I mean, think about it. Amazon, all the stuff that Amazon could do if you bust up Amazon into 100 different companies, it's not going to be as efficient, right? And so there, there are two schools of thought. And, and there are many leftists who are like, not pro-monopoly leftists, but just... Leftists who argue that centralized and big is actually good and like localized and small is oftentimes bad. So I'd love to see a debate between Stoller and and Bhaskar Sankara or anybody else on the left who thinks that 
anti-monopoly politics are not really the way to go because the other thing about anti-monopoly politics, and I think this criticism has a grain of truth in it, is that let's say you do it. Let's say you go bust up all these big companies and and you know make it so that there's more competition, lower prices, everything's fair, everything's better. Uh, maybe you even reduce income and wealth inequality in the process mm-hmm. as you bust up the monopolies. All yeah. these good things, right? Start the clock. How much longer until they get right back to the position they were in before? It's like you're fighting a losing battle all the time because the, the forces of capital are just going to move in that direction again. And then what are you going to do? Bust them up again? Like, in other words, it's a, you don't get to the core of the problem. They would argue the core of the problem is capitalism. Right. That doesn't matter if you bust them up and, and temporarily you're in a good place. Eventually, you're going to get right back to that bad place because that's how capital functions. Yeah. But, I mean, ultimately, at the moment, the revolution has not yet arrived. So in terms of what's possible in the, the present moment... It is a disaster to have, like, Amazon, for example, have so much control over the labor mar- market and be pressuring not only what they do to their own workforce, but they, like, bring down wages and bring down uh, working standards for other warehouses in their same region. So, I mean, that's clearly a disaster for workers. It's, it's a disaster for workers when they don't have an ability to, like, like if an Amazon warehouse is the only game in town, like in Bessemer, Alabama, it's going to make it very dif- difficult to unionize and be able to withhold your labor. So, um, given present conditions, I am very much in support of curbing the power of these corporations as a, a step one towards a more, you know, an even more transformational solution. I understand that, but I don't yeah. think it's fair to say it's, you know, revolutionary politics versus non-revolutionary politics. They, to use, to keep using the example of Amazon, here's the schools of thought. He would say, just bust them up, mm-hmm. break, break it up into a hundred different companies or whatever. That'll have downstream positive effects. And there's probably a good argument for that. A lefty position could be, no, don't break it up, but just heavily regulate it. Say now there's a new law. You have to be in a union if you're in Amazon. Raise the wage wages at Amazon. Tax the wealthy. Yeah. Like do extreme regulation of it. And then in another a further left position would be nationalize it. Yeah. So in other words, keep keep the efficiency, the size of it, keep all of that, but just now regulate it to make it fair or take it over from the government. So those are the schools of thoughts. And I think think they're all, there's arguments for each of those things. I think to me, it depends a lot on the industry. So I see that argument as making a lot of sense, for example, in um, the tech industry, like social media. So breaking up Twitter doesn't make sense because right. social yeah. media is sort of like a natural monopoly. They talk about public utilities and natural monopoly, which 100% le- right. leads to, you know, over like government regulation and partnership with industry. And so um, with Twitter and with Facebook and other social media platforms, the whole value is in the fact that everybody is there. So then, like I said, it doesn't really make sense to break it up. Facebook, there's more of a case for because they also bought up WhatsApp and they bought up Instagram, whatever. So you could break those pieces up. But even just if you had Facebook alone, it still is basically a monopoly in its own space. So there, I think it makes more sense to have a lot more government regulation, if not just outright nationalization. I mean, personally, think that Joe Biden should just buy Twitter from Elon Musk right now. That's my opinion. Um, Yeah, my instinct is the same as yours, that it basically depends on the industry in terms of how you approach it. Because, yeah, I think sometimes centralization is better, you know, and I think other times breaking it up is better. So more local level competition, smaller. So it does. I think it depends on the industry, too. But that usually that's not his take. I think he honestly would say break up Twitter. Yeah, he's I think, he's so anti-monopolist that it's just like everything, just break everything up, make it all small business, you know. 
Yeah. Well, we'd have to, I know on Facebook, that's his view. I'm not sure specifically on Twitter, but, um, but I always find him, I also, also thought his um, analysis of crypto and the way he simplified it was really important. And Stoller has always been, he was a great critic and analyst during the financial crash. So he really, it takes a uh, detailed understanding of the financial system to really be able to see through the bullshit to say, blockchain is just basically a shitty spreadsheet and crypto is just, you know, fraud effectively <laughs> and say it with confidence. There was a time where when he made that argument, there'd be a massive backlash where people would be like, don't, you're being flippant, you're being glib, you're not really steel manning their position. Now I think a lot of people are going to hear that and be like, yeah, that's kind of true. You know, I mean, I do wish he would have made the argument as to what people originally saw in it in the first place. Yeah. He didn't really do that. He, he said it's, it's just fraud, right? Yeah. But um, given what happened with FTX, I think it's it's a tall order to argue at this late date that like, no, still, there's a lot of like hope for this, bro. Because well, he wasn't one bad actor. It was He's not the only bad actor. Well, it also, I mean... It's so typical of what a lot of the financial industry tries to do. They try to wrap it in jargon and complexity to distract from the reality of what they're doing, which is just like basically like gambling and price gouging and shifting money around and speculation and fraud. And so with crypto, you know, that certainly applies where if you go and you read all these, you know, all this complicated, like what is an algorithmic stable coin? And you can just like lose your mind trying to track all of these intricacies. So when he just breaks it down, it's like, okay, here in reality is what it is. It's just like making a spreadsheet and then claiming this is money and moving things around on it and pretending like it's real. Like that at bottom is what's going on here. And I've, I've, you know, I, I really genuinely do feel for people who got caught up in this, who believed in the like utopian and idealist language around it, who believed in the promise of it, who bought into what has been a very sophisticated propaganda um, machine to, to persuade them that this is the future and this is innovative and it's this is new financial technology and this is the, you know, new big thing. But you know, it really does at the end of the day come down to this is just invented money based on nothing and backed by nothing. So ultimately, you know, it's rife for collapse at any moment. Uh, and yeah, and they've been it's been used just for rampant speculation. Like you said, there hasn't been an increase in the number of products and goods you can buy. Right. With it. So it's like, well, what are you doing with it then? It's just you're just speculating. Yeah. If it's not an, like it's not a currency because you can't actually use it to buy things. So what is it? I wonder if now we're going to see a bunch of places start whatever places do allow you to buy with crypto, if they're going to start like walking away from. Yeah. It. You know what I'm saying? Because if he's right, we're about to see a snowball effect. Which I'll be interested to see. I don't know if we're going to see a snowball effect. I think we're already seeing a we, snowball Well, we effect. have, but it's only the ones that are directly tied in with FTX. I wonder if this is going to impact parts of the market that weren't. And what percentage of the market wasn't involved with FTX to one extent or another. FTX and Binance are the two largest exchange. Well, and the Binance guy was like, he was a bad actor, bro. He was a bad actor. Yeah. It's like, well, all right, we'll see what happens right, with your they, company. They paused TikTok, customer withdrawals, so it doesn't look good for them either. That, that doesn't look good is right. So anyway, like I said, my cousin traded in this he totally bought the you know the and i've heard all of his talking points too about like did you know that every fiat currency in the world that's ever been made has collapsed and what the fucking digital currency that you're you guys made up seven and a half minutes ago that's going to be stable and around forever and mm -hmm. at least again at least actual currency is backed by the u.s government 
This is like, you know, a bunch of tech pros pushing numbers around on a computer screen. But I'm sure he lost a lot with that. I'm sure a lot of people lost a lot with it. I genuinely feel bad for those people. But yeah, like we said, and we'll wrap up on this. But like we said, after the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession, there were two school schools of thought that came out of that. One school of thought was like, oh, shit, this happened because of deregulation. The Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, which repealed Glass-Steagall, which had separated commercial banking from investment banking. That was one of the big things that led to the crash. Um, so we need to get back to like New Deal era stuff, regulate, make sure everything's safe, because we had steady, stable growth in our economy when you, you did regulate the economy and when you had strong unions as well, all that stuff. That was one school of thought. The other school of thought was, uh, let me look into Ayn Rand and libertarian economics. And those people made the argument that like, oh, the Community uh, Reinvestment Act or whatever it was called, where the government tried to get more minority people to own oh, houses. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's the problem is, is that the, the government regulations forced them to, to give out these loans they shouldn't have been given out. And so the problem was you need a government to get out, bro. So more government getting out. And then, uh, of course, those people uh, eventually are the types of people who ended up getting interested in crypto. But, you know, fact of the matter is, at least insofar as the 2008 crash goes, their diagnosis was wrong. The problem wasn't too much government. Right. The problem and, was not enough government. The problem which, was... Which is part of why there's such an effort now to say, oh, this is actually a Democratic Party problem. Because the ideology you're laying out, the liber Ayn Rand libertarian ideology, like there are plenty of Democrats who ascribe to a version of this as well. But this is fundamentally a right-wing ideology, which is much more prevalent among... Republicans, um, as backed up by what Stoller was saying about what they have done with their power while they're in office and enabling crypto and this fraud to grow and grow. So now that the whole bottom is falling out, there's a real grasping to be like, oh, Sam Bankman fried is just because he's a Democrat. It has nothing to do with anything else. It's just like to try to make it in a partisan issue and like turn turn on its head what's actually going on here. Yeah, so TikTok for the rest of the, the uh, crypto industry. Indeed. We'll see. I got my eye on it closely. All right, guys. Thank you so much for watching. I'll do the pitch this time. If you guys like what we do here, um, please consider subscribing. Um, you get the newsletters, you get the video, all the good stuff. You get it a day early and you get our eternal gratitude, I think most importantly here. Yeah, that that matters. You, you know, you want... You want me and my blonde ass hair to think of you uh, nicely. By the you know? way, just to circle back to the beginning of the show, we did look it up and you were right. Carrie Lake supported Obama. That's right. Yeah. So there you go. Took a little bit of research, but you found the picture. There she I was. Just say shit, arm bro. Arm. There's, there's some. Even you did if it a lot was more like, Carrie Lake research than I did, apparently. No, I'm, I'm actually going to downplay <laughs> because I was going to say, even if, uh, you know, Dick Sucker eight nine two zero on Twitter tweeted a picture or something. That's like that. That was logged in the memory bank of like, oh, Carrie Lake, Obama. That's a, it's not always the right source, but it's based on something, is what I'm saying. Anyway, we love you guys. Have a great weekend. We'll see you here next week.